Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about cognitive aging, which means the way that just about everyone's memory and thinking change over time due to what's considered quote-unquote normal aging. So just as many aspects of your physical health decline at least a bit as you age, you can't run as fast, it takes longer to recover from injuries, and so forth, this happens because your cells and organs and your body's systems for maintaining the body just don't work as well as when you were younger. So just as that affects your physical abilities, it also affects what we call your cognitive abilities, so the ability of your brain to manage memory, thinking, emotional processes, and other aspects of your consciousness and other aspects of your mental functions. And this phenomenon of cognitive aging has historically been a little less well understood and we've paid less attention to it. And that's for probably at least two reasons. So one is that people tend to notice a change in their physical abilities much more than they do a change in their mental abilities. It's often a little bit more subtle and isn't noticeable as early on, whereas when it comes to physical abilities, we have cosmetic changes that we start noticing, gray hairs, a little bit more wrinkles, and then we also often notice some change in our physical abilities, the way we respond to injuries. So that's one reason. And then on the side of health providers, health providers, including geriatricians, have historically been more focused on cognitive issues that are related to frank diseases and disorders. Issues that come up because uh, people's neurons, those are the cells in the brain, have actually become diseased or deteriorated, and that type of neurodegeneration can in some cases lead to Alzheimer's disease, or if people have had lots of little strokes or vascular injuries, that would be cerebral small vessel disease, that can also affect the brain. And cerebral small vessel disease is something that I covered in episode 48. And actually, cognitive aging is something that I don't think was covered in my geriatrics training, which was over 10 years ago. But actually, I would say it's fairly important to understand the changes to memory and thinking that occur with just normal aging. Because first of all, many people do notice some changes to their memory as they get older, and they sometimes get quite worried about it because they don't realize that it falls within what we would consider as normal. And so understanding what's normal and to be expected can provide some much-needed reassurance. And then also understanding what kinds of changes are common with aging can help families better understand the changes that they often notice in an older parent or another older relative and can help them determine whether that's ordinary and can also maybe give them a little bit more empathy and less frustration because sometimes we just feel like, why isn't this person able to do these things the same way as before. And the reason is because, you know, the mind changes a little bit. So since often on Better Health While Aging and on the podcast, I've covered changes in thinking that are abnormal and concerning, I thought it would be helpful 
for me to address what is normal and what is to be expected. So I have written a related article, which I'll post in the show notes. And then here's what I'll cover in this episode. So first, I'm just going to briefly review how cognitive aging differs from other diseases and conditions because it's important to understand that distinction. Then I'm going to go through six particular aspects of cognition that change with aging, and I'm going to explain how they change and the kind of practical implications. I'm also going to cover how to tell cognitive aging apart from more worrisome changes and what you can do about cognitive aging. And then I'll finish with some practical takeaways. Now, before I get into the meat of the podcast, I'll be frank. As you're going to find out, most mental processes uh, do become less nimble with time, less fluid. And, And I'm going to address this sort of question of fluid intelligence versus crystallized later in the episode. Just as your 75-year-old self won't run as fast as your 30-year-old self, the 75-year-old brain will, for the most part, not think quite as quickly either. And this can be discouraging news to many people, and so people sometimes don't want to learn more about this. But I want to reassure you to say that the news is not that bad, and it's not all bad. Yes, some aspects of cognition work more slowly and less well, but on the other hand, older adults can often compensate by drawing on their experiences, as I'm going to explain, the sort of things that people have actually learned in a normal person tend to stay. And actually, that experience can be incredibly valuable for certain life tasks. Cognitive aging also appears to help older adults become more optimistic and emotionally resilient. There's been a lot of interesting research done on this recently, and it's part of why older people often are happier than they were earlier in life. So yes, we are going to hear some things that you might find perhaps not as encouraging as you would have liked, but I hope you'll stay with this episode because by better understanding cognitive aging, I really think that you'll be better equipped to anticipate your own future and to understand the older adults in your life. So before I go into the processes that change, how does cognitive aging differ from a disease or more concerning change in mental function? because people are sometimes a little unclear about how this might be different from a condition such as mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's disease or another memory-related condition. There's a really good explanation of the difference in the Cognitive Aging Action Guide that was published by the National Academy of Medicine in 2015, formerly known as the Institute of Medicine. They did a fantastic, really groundbreaking report on cognitive aging, where they gathered together all these experts in brain health. And there's a PDF that's a specific action guide for individuals and families that I'm going to link to in the show notes and that I recommend. So that kind of covers the difference. Basically, one of the big differences is that most disease processes and worrisome processes involve the neurons being damaged or dying. Whereas in normal cognitive aging, for the most part, you retain all those neurons in your brain. They just are a little less efficient and a little less quick. And for certain processes, that speed of processing really is relevant. And this loss of efficiency is gradual. And just like other age-associated changes in the body, it does tend to happen a little differently for every person, in part due to things like genetics and lifestyle and environmental factors, and sometimes the way people took care of themselves. And it also seems related to how much initial educational attainment and cognitive attainment people were able to develop earlier 
in life. So again, it's not a disease. It doesn't involve neurodegeneration or significant damage to the neurons. It's basically the brain's version of your body parts working a little less efficiently because age tends to chip away at the speed and effectiveness of all your body's processes. And in particular, normal cognitive aging should not impair an older person's abilities to the point that they are visibly struggling with life tasks or no longer able to live independently. Now, when it comes to mild cognitive impairment, part of the definition of mild cognitive impairment is that when the person, when their cognition is tested, they should have some objective evidence that certain aspects of their mental processes work less well than would be expected for a normal person of their age. So when you're assessed for possible mild cognitive impairment, they're supposed to be comparing you to the age-appropriate norm, not to your 20-year-old self or some other 20-year-old. So that would be part of the difference there. So now let me go through six particular mental processes that change with aging. And um, so people often think a lot about memory when they think of cognition or of brain function, but there's actually a lot more to thinking and to the way that the brain does its work. So we're going to go through six key processes, and for each one, I'm going to tell you what it is, how it changes with aging, and some practical implications. So number one, processing speed. So this refers to how quickly the brain can process information and then provide a response, such as making a movement or providing a verbal answer. Processing speed affects just about every function in the brain, and so it's not in of itself a specific mental task. It's more about how quickly you can manage a certain mental task. So how does it change with aging? So it does decrease with age. Now, what people often don't realize is that this decrease starts quite early in life. I mean, basically almost all aspects of your physical abilities, and this is in a way the sort of brain analog of a physical ability, those all basically peak in your early to mid-20s. Processing speed peaks at that time too, and then starts to decline in what is almost a linear decline. So by the time people are in their 70s or 80s, processing speed is significantly down compared to the speed that one had in one's 20s. What's the practical implication of this? This affects lots of aspects about how older adults take in new information or think about things, especially complicated things. And what we find is that older adults do need more time to take in information and to formulate an appropriate response compared to their younger selves. And then there are also certain tasks that require a lot of information processing as you do them. So for instance, driving can be affected by slower processing because part of driving is this sort of motor memory. It's also called procedural memory. I'm going to talk about that type of memory in a moment. So that's kind of learned and encoded into the brain and body, and that's preserved. And our driving skills often have a certain aspect of that procedural memory. But at the same time, when you drive, you have to be able to take in lots of information around you, right? The movements of the other cars, the lights, the signs, and you have to be able to respond fairly quickly. So that is part of why driving can become more challenging as people get older. And so otherwise, you know, any task that requires people to take in a lot of information in real time and respond fairly quickly is going to be harder to do well as one gets older. Next aspect of cognition, number two, memory. So memory, what is it? 
This is actually a very broad category covering the ability to remember information. So here are some key subtypes for you to know about. So first there's working memory. This refers to the ability to temporarily hold information in mind and then manipulate it mentally. So an example would be when somebody tells you a phone number and you have to hold it in mind for a few seconds while you dial it. This you know, little mental scratch pad is involved in a pretty wide variety of mental tasks, including problem solving, making decisions, and even processing language. Then there's another type of memory that's called semantic long-term memory. And this refers to factual information that you acquire over time, such as the name of a state capital. This is not usually about sort of events that happened to you. This is just, you know, in a way, sort of your fund of knowledge. Then there's episodic memory. Now, episodic memory is the autobiographical memory. This is basically one's memory for personally experienced events that have happened at particular places or times. Then there's prospective memory. This is your ability to remember to do things in the future. So you sort of tell yourself, I'm going to do this later, and then you need to remember that somehow. Then there's procedural memory. So this is the kind of motor memory. In in medicine, motor usually refers to movements that the body makes. So this is also sometimes called skill learning. And so it refers to the learning and remembering of how to do certain physical movements or physical activities. It usually requires time and practice to build up. So that's a brief overview of several types of memory. Memory is actually a quite complicated topic you know, one could identify other subtypes and experts are also still debating just how to categorize and explain the many different ways that people remember information or how to do things. And it can also be helpful to keep in mind that it's technically a different task for the brain to create a memory. This is sometimes called encoding versus maintaining it versus retrieving it. So a person might have trouble remembering something either because they had trouble encoding it in the first time. And so to take in information, you want to have to capture it accurately, right? So if your hearing's bad, or if it's a very busy, distracting environment where you're having trouble paying attention to it, you know, you're having difficulty capturing the information. And once you capture it into that first initial working memory or first level, you then have to be able to absorb it and send it further into your brain and encode it into something deeper. There's actually some really interesting research that has come out about how part of that process of really absorbing it happens during sleep, and older adults experience changes to their sleep, and that might be part of why they become a little bit worse at really encoding a memory or information. So a person might have trouble remembering something because they had difficulty encoding it, or they could have difficulty because they're having trouble with the retrieval aspect of using that information. That said, how does memory change with aging? You probably won't be surprised. Many aspects of memory do decline with age, but not all of them. So what declines? Working memory declines. Episodic memory. So that's, again, your autobiographical memory for things that happened in certain places or events. That tends to get a little worse, especially for more recent events. And then prospective memory, that ability to remember something that you're supposed to do in the future that also declines with age. But there are some kinds of memory that stay stable at least until people are very old. And those are procedural memory. So again, that if you've practiced a skill a lot, then a normal person shouldn't be forgetting how to do that, whether that's typing or tying their shoes or riding a bicycle. 
And then semantic long-term memory. So that's your fund of knowledge. That also stays mostly stable, might start declining when people are in their 70s and 80s, but doesn't have that sort of decline starting, you know, around age 30 that the other types of memory that are more related to processing speed do experience. So what are the practical implications of these changes in memory? So I'm basically normal aging adults are generally good at retaining information and memories that they have previously acquired, but it can take them a little longer to retrieve them because that retrieval process requires some processing. And the ability to perform well-learned movements and procedures, such as typing, should remain stable. But older adults may need more time and practice to learn a new movement or procedure or skill and to create that procedural memory. Another practical implication, the decline in working memory does mean that older adults may need more time or have more difficulty solving complex problems or weighing complicated decisions because Doing that requires people to hold a lot of bits of information in their head and make decisions about them. So especially if the information is unfamiliar, that can be challenging. The declines in episodic memory may cause older adults to be a little bit more forgetful, especially for recent events. The decline in prospective memory means older adults may be a little bit more likely to forget something they were supposed to do unless they develop sort of strategies, reminder lists, and other things like that, which people sometimes do to compensate for that. And just in general, it can help to give older adults more time to actually encode the information in their memories. This requires processing time. And then also it requires helping them be able to pay enough attention. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about attention right now because attention is aspect number three of cognition that I want to tell you about. So what is attention? Attention is the mental ability to concentrate and focus on something specific so that the information related to that specific thing can be successfully processed. This is actually quite important because we live in a, first of all, now we live in a very busy, chaotic modern world, but even before modern times, you know, the nature of life is that there's lots going on around you, things to see, things to hear, things going on. And so it's really crucial to the brain to be able to focus on specific things and to a certain extent tune out other things so that it can absorb and use that information. Let me tell you about a few key subtypes of attention. So one of them is selective attention, and this is the ability to focus on something specific despite the presence of other distracting information, which you know is technically called stimuli, things that kind of ping the brain. So some examples would be following a conversation despite being in a busy environment where other people are speaking. So when we talk to someone and there are other people speaking around us, we have to be able to tune into their voice and what they're saying and, you know, more or less ignore the other things that people are saying around us. Another example would be looking at a cluttered website and picking out the information that you wanted to pay attention to and to continue to follow that despite other stuff going on on the site. So that's selective attention. Then there's also divided attention, and this is sometimes known as multitasking. So this is the ability to manage multiple tasks or multiple streams of information at the same time. So an example would be reading a recipe while you're listening to music, driving while speaking to someone. Now, as you may have heard, it's not possible to like truly multitask and be paying attention closely to two things at once. Usually people have to do some switching fairly quickly. 
And then the third type of attention that I want to mention is sustained attention. And so this is the ability to remain concentrated on something for an extended period of time. How does attention change with aging? So some aspects of attention do get worse with aging. Paying attention, you know, takes energy and a certain amount of mental agility. So specifically, selective attention gets worse with aging, divided attention gets worse with aging, but then sustained attention tends to not get worse with aging. And now you might be saying, wait, what did she say? Which were all those types of attention? Let me give you the practical implications, which will illustrate this. Basically, as people get older, they become more easily distracted by noise, visual clutter, or a busy situation. And it requires more effort for them to pay attention, especially when other things are going on. And that's because their selective attention gets a little worse. And so that's the attention to help you focus on things and ignore irrelevant things. And their divided attention gets worse, the ability to kind of switch between two tasks or bit of information. Now, what doesn't get worse is sustained attention. So older adults retain the ability to concentrate on a task or something at hand and stay concentrated, especially if there's not you know, too much distracting things going on around them. Okay, let me move on now to the fourth aspect of cognition that I wanted to cover. And this one is language skills. What are language skills? So this covers a variety of mental abilities related to understanding and producing both verbal language and written language. So how does this change with aging? So first of all, vocabulary tends to remain stable with aging and can actually keep going up over time. So that's, again, you know, a little bit part of your general fund of knowledge. And then the comprehension of written language tends to remain stable. So, you know, assuming people can see the text and are given the time to process it, they should be able to understand written language just fine. Now, speech comprehension, so understanding what people are saying, does seem to decline a bit with age, especially if the older person has any hearing difficulties or if the person speaking is speaking quickly, which is probably my problem, sorry or if the speech is distorted, so kind of synthetic speech or, you know, a voice through a loudspeaker or some kind of computerized voice. And that's probably harder for older adults to understand because it just requires more mental processing and their processing is slower and they kind of fall behind as the speech is going on. Another language skill that does appear to decline somewhat with age is language production. So some specific examples. More time is needed to find a word. So it does become more common for people as they get older to pause in the middle of a sentence. Spelling familiar words may become more difficult. And then the ability to name a common object tends to decline after age 70. And all of this is probably related to processing speed and certain aspect of retrieving the right word. So what are the practical implications of normal age-related changes in language skills? Normal older adults should retain their vocabulary and their ability to understand the written word, but they may struggle with understanding people who speak quickly or distorted speech, whether that's being produced by a loudspeaker or by a synthetic voice, and then retrieving words often takes longer. 
So it's good to give them more time to say what they need to say. Moving on. So the next cognitive function that I want to talk about, number five, is executive functioning. Executive functioning refers to the mental skills that are needed for activities related to planning, organizing, problem solving, abstract thinking, mental flexibility, and appropriate behavior. A lot of this is based in the front part of the brain, which is actually the part that matures um, the latest earlier in life. And executive function allows people to do things such as solve new problems, organize information and plan activities, think abstractly, use reason, especially when it comes to reasoning with new information or unfamiliar material. It allows them to adapt to new situations. It enables people to behave in socially appropriate ways because it's involved in, you know, making that judgment call of what's okay or not okay to say or do. And it's totally involved in making complex decisions. So how does executive function change with aging? So it does generally decline with age. I mean, a lot of this executive function requires mental flexibility and processing, and that just goes down as people get older. And it especially seems to decline after age 70. So what are the practical implications? Normal older adults still can perform many of the executive function tasks that I listed as examples, but they're not going to do them as well or as quickly as when they were younger. And they might especially struggle or need more time for more demanding executive function tasks if they're tired or if they're otherwise cognitively feeling taxed. And things that tax people cognitively would be, you know, again, a busy, distracting environment or not having gotten enough sleep or, you know, certain medications will also slow one down cognitively and so forth. And now the last category of cognitive function that I want to cover, number six, is emotional processing. So this refers to the ways that one processes and regulates emotions, especially the negative ones. So here are some examples. This would include how quickly one moves out of a negative emotional state, you know, and kind of returns to one's baseline after something upsetting happens or after there's a stressful encounter. This also affects how physically or emotionally reactive a person is to an interpersonal stressor. So, you know, that would mean having a difficult conversation with somebody. And then this also refers to the mental strategies that a person and that the brain uses for minimizing information or stimuli that could have a negative emotional impact. So one mental strategy would be to pay less attention to those things. And another one would be that, you know, once you've absorbed it, to not kind of deeply take it in or otherwise uh, return to your baseline. So how does this change with aging? So this is where the good news comes in. Older adults neurologically in their brain, normal older adults, do experience several changes to the way their brains react and process things that generally make them more positive and optimistic. So these include, even though they're kind of worse at paying attention in some ways, sort of paradoxically, older adults become quite good at paying less attention and ignoring or withdrawing from negatively stimulating situations. And they pay more attention to positive things, and they become better at remembering positive things. And if you're interested in this, I'll post a link in the show notes to a really interesting article 
reviewing some of the research on this. It's just really fascinating. What are the practical implications of this? I mean, basically, normal older adults develop a positivity bias. They really do tend to pay more attention to situations that are emotionally positive, and then they really do have more difficulty remembering or paying attention to situations or problems that generate negative emotions. And I was really fascinated when I learned about this, and I've only learned about it in the last few years, because I feel like often we as health providers and families, you know, are trying to get older adults to address their advanced planning, right? You know, the what-ifs, the often more difficult or unfortunate what-ifs, and why is it so difficult? Well, I mean, it turns out that, you know, older adults, it's not just that they're being stubborn or in denial, but it really does become harder to think ahead to negative things as you get older. So this does make it a little harder to address certain types of, you know, planning for unpleasant future eventualities. But on the flip side, it does help older adults be happier and more positive. Older adults also tend to just be more emotionally resilient. They recover from negative emotions more quickly as they get older. Now, there's a slight downside. This positivity is also probably part of what makes older adults a little bit more vulnerable to financial exploitation. They believe better things about people and so may be less likely to recognize or be suspicious of someone who is interested in financially exploiting them. And we did cover financial exploitation in a recent podcast episode, which was episode 70. So those are six aspects of cognitive function that change with aging. Again, they were processing speed, memory, attention, language skills, executive functioning, and emotional processing. And now, you know, in thinking about how to put that all together, I think it can be useful to talk about the idea of crystallized versus fluid intelligence in aging. So when experts discuss normal cognitive changes, they sometimes use these terms, crystallized intelligence versus fluid intelligence, because they're a convenient way to sort of categorize certain mental functions. Basically, crystallized intelligence refers to everything one has learned over time, skills, abilities, knowledge, experience with other people. And this increases as people get older because crystallized intelligence is a function of experience, practice, and familiarity. And in a normal person, it doesn't go away with age. People retain all of that. And this is a big part of what leads to, you know, wisdom as people get older. So crystallized intelligence gets better or stays stable as people get older. And what's kind of neat is that the experience and wisdom does enable older adults to compensate for some of the declines in processing speed and other abilities. So for instance, there was one study where I think they were sort of studying older and younger adults typing. And you know, younger adults have faster processing speed, but older adults have more experience on what might be the next letter or the next word. And this allowed them to sort of compensate and keep up a little bit better. And the fact that crystallized intelligence remains and, you know, basically grows over one's lifespan means that older adults can perform better than younger people at those mental tasks or in those situations where depth of knowledge or experience are very valuable, which, you know, includes a lot of big picture situations or things involving social dynamics. And then there's fluid intelligence. And this basically refers to abilities that involve processing power, a good ability to maintain attention, you know, and the selective attention where you block out distracting things, 
Fluent intelligence also involves taking in new information, problem solving with new or less familiar information, and reacting quickly. This type of intelligence does peak when we are younger. Again, you know, probably around one's mid-20s, and then it declines over time. So when you're young, you've got fast processor and a lot of abilities, but not a lot of accumulated wisdom, and you're more emotionally reactive and more likely to pay attention to negative things as well. Whereas as one gets older, one accumulates this fund of knowledge and experience, and one is emotionally more stable, but the mind is less nimble. It's harder to pay attention, especially in busy environments, and things like complex problem-solving become more challenging. So what can be done about this? I'm going to go into that in a moment, but before I do, I just want to briefly address something that people often wonder after they learn about cognitive aging, which is how can you tell cognitive aging from more worrisome changes, right? So if somebody's having a little moments of change with their memory or other sort of changes in the way that they think or respond or react, how do you know whether that's normal cognitive aging or something more substantial? So a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, although yes, it's normal for your memory to be a little worse, for it to take a little longer for you to do things or think through things, there are some changes that worry families. They tend to worry families more than older adults themselves that are not at all to be expected with cognitive aging. These include things like delusions, hallucinations, paranoia, and other signs of what we might call late-life psychosis. I wrote an article about late-life psychosis on the site previously, and I'll share a link in the show notes. And those signs do not necessarily mean Alzheimer's or dementia either. They can be caused by medical disorders, including delirium and medications, but those are not to be expected with normal cognitive aging. Likewise, getting irritable more easily, a lot more easily, or becoming emotionally very reactive, what we call emotionally lewa, that's also not to be expected with cognitive aging. If that's happening, we would think about other reasons. And you know, it can be something as simple as just having pain most of the time, which happens to people sometimes due to their arthritis or you know, other things going on with their health. Or it can be related to actual changes within the brain. Also not to be expected with normal cognitive aging would be depression or a related term which medically is anhedonia. That means losing the ability to enjoy things that used to bring you pleasure. That can be a key sign of depression in older adults. So that's also not to be expected. And actually, although as people get older, they tend to get happier, some people do develop depression. And in some cases, it seems to be related to having changes and a little bit of small vessel damage to the brain. It can be related to like the very earliest changes that could become vascular dementia later on. Of course, there are lots of other things that can bring on depression in later life as well. Changes to one's social standing or to one's life, retiring, bereavement, and so forth. So all of those changes are things that we would not expect with normal cognitive aging. And so if you notice them in yourself or in someone else, it's important to not blow it off as normal and to think about getting help. Now, what about if you notice actual changes to memory or to thinking? I mean, this is challenging because, you know, the nature of a condition such as Alzheimer's or many of the neurodegenerative ones is that 
they're slow to progress and they're very slowly affecting the neurons in the brain. You know, research shows that they can see signs of the changes 10 to 15 years before people actually have obvious symptoms. So, you know, initially if somebody's taking a little extra time to come up with their word or having trouble with their sentences, is that normal or is that the very earliest sign of something going on? It can be actually hard to tell. So, you know, a couple of things that you can do. First of all, the Alzheimer's Association has a very nice list of 10 signs of uh, early Alzheimer's. And what's nice is that for each sign, they kind of compare it to what would be normal for getting older. So for instance, one of the 10 signs is memory loss that disrupts daily life. They say, you know, could include forgetting important dates or event, asking for the same information over and over again. But then they contrast it. They have a section, you know, what's a typical age-related change would be occasionally forgetting names or appointments, but remembering them later. So this is a nice list, and I'll post a link to it in the show notes of worrisome signs, but, you know, comparing them to what would be a normal sort of similar age-related change to help you tell the difference. Otherwise, if you are concerned, then I'll also post a link in the show notes to the article on mild cognitive impairments. If you're concerned, then I would say, you know, uh, consider an evaluation for mild cognitive impairment or a cognitive evaluation where you can have somebody both have a health professional do some more objective assessment of your memory and thinking skills and also look for common health conditions that can diminish brain function. So otherwise, what can be done about cognitive aging, about the fact that many of the brain's abilities will get a little worse with aging? There are basically two approaches that I would recommend. The first is that although the brain is going to slowly work less and less well in many ways as one gets older, you know, it's not inevitable and there are practical things that you can do to slow that process. So those are basically taking, you know, the fundamental steps that help people optimize and maintain their brain function. There's lots of overlap in these steps with dementia prevention. So as I mentioned, the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, did this great report on cognitive aging. And in the action guide for individuals and families, they do recommend six steps that they think have good scientific evidence. Actually, three of them have very good scientific evidence, and the other three, they said the scientific evidence was less strong, but was still compelling. So those are the basics like physical activity, reducing your cardiovascular risk, which I went into in detail for episode 57, managing your medications, and especially avoiding those that affect brain function, which is another topic I've covered on the website remaining socially and intellectually engaged, so spending time with people, volunteering, work, purpose, things like that, getting enough sleep. And then, and I love that they did this because this is often overlooked in these sort of pillars of brain health lists, but the Institute of Medicine also recommended being proactive about avoiding delirium. So I'll share a link to their list in the notes, and then I'll also share a link to the checklist for brain health that I wrote a few years ago, which has those same items, but I also included managing stress if you have a lot of stress in your life, which some older people do sometimes because they're providing care to an ill spouse or someone else in the family. You also want to treat anxiety and depression, recognize it and treat it if it seems to be present, ideally with non-drug methods when possible. And then I think it's also worth considering the health of one's gut bacteria because there's just increasing interesting research showing that the health of the bacteria in our guts affects our overall health, including our brain health. So that's the first main approach to addressing cognitive aging is to take these steps 
to optimize and maintain brain function. And then the other main approach is to consider taking sensible steps to compensate for the changes that you have experienced or that you're likely to experience in the future. It's unfortunately just not realistic to assume that you will be able to mentally do everything when you are in your later decades the way you could earlier in life. So, you know, you don't want to be pessimistic and shortchange yourself. We don't want older people to think of themselves as not being capable. But at the same time, things aren't that nimble. And so there are some practical steps that we can take to acknowledge this. So let me now close with the practical takeaways that I recommend. So again, as one gets older, fluid intelligence does decrease. So if you're wondering why you're not as mentally nimble as you were before, why your memory isn't as good, or why it takes longer for you to learn things, if you're wondering why your parent isn't as adept in solving complex problems or in organizing complicated things as before, I mean, that is quite possibly the reason. It's just normal for all of that to work less well as one gets older. And then you also want to bear in mind that older adults do develop basically an optimism bias. So the good news is you're likely to become happier as you get older. But it also means that as you get older, you will probably have more difficulty perceiving risks and concerns that your family will perceive. It's just a consequence of the way the brain changes as one gets older. And it's going to be probably harder to anticipate problems. So, you know, for family members, your older relative is not being stubborn and is not being in denial. It just really is harder to pay attention and anticipate negative consequences as one gets older. That's what the research is suggesting. Next takeaway that I want to share is that older adults are still very capable and are generally able to manage things. But there are a few things that they or you, their family, should keep in mind. It's a good idea to allow more time to weigh complicated decisions and to allow time for older adults to consider and reconsider before they change their mind. I mean, research has shown that it's harder for older adults once they've reached a decision to consider new information and change their mind. So it's not impossible. It just takes a little extra time and might require a little extra patience on the part of the family. Another really important takeaway, you know, and way to compensate for these cognitive uh, aging changes is to do what you can to avoid noisy or stimulating or distracting environments when the older person is doing something else or is involved in, you know, a conversation, especially a conversation that requires problem solving or making decisions or otherwise draws upon fluid intelligence. Even for me in my early 40s, I think thinking through something complicated is hard for me if the environment is noisy, especially later in the day when I'm more tired. And that's me in my early 40s. So it's going to be even worse for me when I'm in my 70s or 80s. So at that time, I hope I'll have the presence of mind to ask for a quieter environment or that my family will be able to do that for me. And then if there are any hearing issues, you want to try to correct that if possible. I'm hoping to do a podcast episode eventually on hearing aids, but as you know, they're a hassle, they're difficult, they're expensive, it's hard to find right ones. But a simple solution that can help in the short term is to get something called a pocket talker, a personal amplification device. It's basically like a pair of headphones with a little box that's about the size of an old Walkman. You don't need a prescription or a fitting, and they can help people just hear a specific conversation 
better. So, you know, if you have to have conversations about what to do about the house or this or that with an older person, and it seems like the hearing is getting in the way, try to fix that hearing at least short term with a pocket talker so that you can free up some of their processing power to attend to weighing the decision, which is already going to be more challenging for them than it was 10 or 20 years before. I also recommend writing key points down. This is something that I used to do in my practice when people left. It just gives people something to look at and to think about so that then they don't have to hold bits of information as much in their working memory as they try to decide what to do with it. Again, cognitive aging should not affect the ability to live independently and to manage fundamental life tasks, but the Institute of Medicine report did conclude that normal cognitive aging can affect some important activities that just require a lot of fluid intelligence. And those are namely driving, because again, you have to be able to process a lot of information as you're actually driving, and also the ability to manage complex finances. So they do make some recommendations in their action guide for steps that older adults and families can take to compensate for that. And I highly recommend taking a look. They're useful suggestions. And then lastly, if the cognitive changes that you notice seem to be more than what I've described here as kind of, you know, a little bit of general slowing in fluid intelligence, then you do want to consider getting some evaluation, either for mild cognitive impairment or an evaluation for cognitive impairment in general. And again, I covered what that should include in episode 69. It should be doable in the primary care doctor's office. That's all I have to say for today for cognitive aging. I personally found it really interesting to review the research on this and felt like it's, you know, helped me better understand the older people that I talk to and work with. So I hope it will do the same for you. And remember, it's not all bad news because even though fluid intelligence gets a little worse, crystallized intelligence, all that knowledge and experience should stay stable. And emotional processing tends to make people more resilient and more optimistic. And that definitely improves people's quality of life. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.